I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions and obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered and addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoyed the whole program. Welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. And in this edition of Aussie Med Ed, we get to interview Dr. Lane Hinchcliffe, a general practitioner based in Adelaide, South Australia. He's a principal general practitioner and owner of the Health Hub Family Practice in Glenelg and founder and CEO of Community General Practice, a not-for-profit organisation with a mission to improve access to general practice services for South Australians in need. Today he's going to talk about his approach as a modern general practitioner to teenage and adolescent medical issues. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide and also a senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide involved in orthopaedic musculoskeletal teaching. I hope you enjoy the podcast series and if so, please feel free to subscribe, give us a like or review or tell your friends about it. We look forward to having you listen to our podcast series and we hope you find it enjoyable. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been produced and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. Well, I'd now like to welcome Dr Lane Hinchcliffe. Lane is a gentleman of many talents, not only a doctor who provides services to the Indigenous population and children and adolescents in need, he's also quite extensively involved in the arts program. Today he's going to talk to us about his experience with adolescent health and medical problems they face. Well, Lane, thanks very much for coming on Aussie Med Ed. It's great to have you on board. As a modern general practitioner, I thought I'd ask you about your experience about what common problems you might see presenting to the adolescent community. What are the things that you commonly see? Well, look, I think adolescent health is diverse and a lot of people think when you hear adolescent health, they immediately think mental health. But to be honest with you, in day-to-day general practice, I would probably see a lot of physical health things as well, everything from your sporting injuries to colds and blues, probably more so before COVID, admittedly. But yeah, just general unwellness. We see a lot of things like skin, acne. And of course, yes, we do get into more of the the mental health and sexual health as well. And of those conditions, uh, which ones are a little bit peculiar to adolescents that you don't quite see in the the older population? Yeah, well, uh, it's a good question. I think to me, it's probably less the conditions that we see, but more kind of the approach that's quite unique. So I think that, you know, acne, for example, is quite a unique skin condition that we very commonly see in adolescents. You can see it in older people, but it's much rarer. And so that's sort of probably a very classic presentation we would see in that young age group. And I guess what, what makes adolescent health an exciting and unique area is that the consults will typically start one of two ways. You'll either have a young person who is coming in on their own accord or with parents but completely happy to be there, or quite commonly, they might actually be there not wanting to be there. It might be their parents who brought them in because of their, they're worried about something that might be happening at school or they're worried about their young person's demeanour. So. It's quite a unique sort of area, I think, working in that sort of field of practice and having to adapt your style from patient to patient. I've found that actually when I see patients in that age group, I think an important aspect to my consults are really to actually direct them and treat them 
as the patient and not try and get dragged into speaking to the, the parents as opposed to speaking to the, the adolescent or the young adult as the uh, important person. Is that a sort of important aspect you've seen as well? Yeah, well, I think that's actually a really fundamental thing we all need to remember to do. I think it's easy sometimes to think that, you know, a young person who presents with parents, we should be directing our conversation to the parents directly. But from my experience, I mean, you don't absolutely don't have to cut the parents out of the equation. I think it's actually really important not to do that. But I also think it's important to build that rapport and allow that young person to develop that relationship with you as a professional without relying on a third party being present. You've started with acne and that's obviously a very common scenario. If we just start on that topic itself, what are the main treatments for this? In my day, it used to be the old cream you'd put on and hope it would settle down and occasionally people would get a few scars from it. But it's a lot more intense now. It's a lot more you can do for acne. Yeah, acne, I think it's an interesting one. And you have to, first of all, probably, well, I think it's very important as a practitioner to recognize the different types of acne. There's some very good protocols through the therapeutic guidelines and also RACGP, which sort of direct the way of thinking. But I guess... Fundamentally, what we try to do is first assess, is this more of a inflammatory or a non-inflammatory presentation? So, you know, with the inflammatory presentations, we're looking at those really red papules, the pustules, and even to the more extreme sort of cases of the cystic acne versus more of your comedonal acne, which is sort of like your whiteheads and blackheads. So varying, depending on which sort of branch you're dealing with and the location of it, then we, we probably follow a, a sort of a three-stepped approach or that's the sort of way I would normally talk about it with the mild sort of presentations we might start with the topical solutions absolutely and that can be a number of things from vitamin A preparations to more of the peroxide or it can even be an antibiotic cream like clindamycin and often it's a combination of, of two of those and then we, we do still add in an oral antibiotic like doxycycline, funnily enough, more so because of the anti-inflammatory effect rather than the antibiotic effect. And that is something that we still use, not just in acne, but also in things like rosacea. So it's, it's very good for facial rashes. Yeah, and if we're still not winning or if the acne is a lot more severe, then we typically do get dermatology involved earlier. Just start looking at some of the, I guess, what we call the heavy duty stuff to see if we can get on top of it. And obviously the most likely organism in this situation is the staph or, or P. acnes as the vending organism? It depends. So certainly if we see sort of like infected lesions, we treat for staph. A lot of the time the, the treatment in the first instance is actually to try to get the acne under control. Even when the lesions look really inflamed and infected, we, we typically sort of go down the protocol of trying to manage the acne as inflammatory or non-inflammatory and then seeing if that resolves it and then obviously targeting the treatment if you think that there's a localised infection there. So the non-infected ones, it's really more the treatment of the skin condition and the exudate rather than actually worrying about what bacteria is involved. And that's right because, I mean, remember as well that like cystic acne can look really angry and it can sometimes look like, you know, what a skin abscess would look like anywhere else. But often treating that lesion with the same way you'd treat a skin abscess is not how we would do it. Certainly, we wouldn't necessarily, we wouldn't be looking at incision and drainage and we wouldn't be necessarily using antibiotics like Fluclox as our mainstay for that sort of presentation. So it is a little bit contextual and I think it's a really important one to be comfortable with in general practice if you're seeing teenagers. Now, moving on to other type of physical conditions that can occur in adolescents and teenagers, what are the main ones you might see? Yeah, look, I think we see a lot of various 
different things that we see in all age groups. But, you know, things such as musculoskeletal is very common, particularly during sports seasons. You know, everything from your minor sort of musculoskeletal injuries, ankle or knee complaints or shoulders or whatever it might be. We then go sometimes into more of the musculoskeletal-like chest pains. Funnily enough, chest pain in teenagers is not unusual and it's most commonly sort of a musculoskeletal cause, although you don't want to not take it seriously, obviously, and do a full workup. And then, yeah, we see everything from your asthma. Some some teenagers obviously have chronic disease even, you know, your type 1 diabetes and, and other things like that. I still see a lot of young people who have concerns about things like gut issues or GIT issues. We see girls particularly who are concerned with periods and whether they might be, you know, particularly painful, heavy, irregular. Yeah, it's a real myriad of things you see in the age group. And I think that's what makes it an exciting area to focus on. So now I can see that rather than just specialising in one area and doing the same procedure day in and day out, you've got multiple areas to deal with. Looking at those, some of those conditions you talked about, asthma is obviously one that's actually a very serious condition which can be life-threatening. Is that incidence settling down or is it increasing with pollutions in the air? Look, I think the, the fundamental problem we have with asthma is that it's often very poorly recognised and poorly diagnosed. And I think that certainly because, you know, the diagnosis and recognition of asthma, there's not a single test or or so that can define a case of asthma. It really means that we have to be very vigilant about what sort of questions we ask, what are the sort of range of presentations, and how you would identify somebody's severity based on that as well. So in answer to your question, it's probably a bit hard to say if it's becoming more common. I think that we certainly recognise that there's probably a lot of undiagnosed cases of asthma, certainly in Australia. And you take a few years ago, if you remember when they had the cases of some adults in Victoria who actually died of an asthma attack following their thunderstorms and they had never been diagnosed before. So they had this really severe attack uh, following the thunderstorms with the pollens getting released from the water hitting the ground. And yeah, it actually claimed a couple of lives. So I think asthma is always a very big challenge and, and understanding how to facilitate that interaction so that a young person who may not actually know that they've got symptoms of asthma or that they're even an abnormal symptom can actually bring that to the table so that we can recognize it, assess it and treat it as necessary is really important. The baseline treatment for asthma remains the inhaled subutamol and steroids? Yeah, so the asthma um, guidelines, again, you know, get updated every single year. But, you know, I guess what we, we typically start with is looking at the symptomatic treatment of things like your salbutamol, exactly. You know, we're, start, we're now starting to look at some other options for that as well, which is really exciting. And I think that the important thing with asthma, as I say, is probably before even getting into the treatment side is to really ensure that we have a good history of symptoms and presentation so that if we're making the diagnosis, which is very commonly going to follow them then for the rest of their life, we get some good baseline data at the beginning and then we monitor them moving forward and and adjust the treatment appropriately. What other conditions do we need to watch out for to be aware of in the community and the adolescent group that sometimes get missed? I think that it's it's often the risk whenever there's generalised symptoms. So people coming in saying they're really tired. It's a really common thing in general practice. And fatigue is one that, you know, if, if you investigated every case of fatigue, you'd, you know, you'd be running tests of, you know, into the 
hundreds and thousands per year, you know, that probably would all come back normal. But I think that we have to recognise that whilst fatigue is a common and very generalised symptom, sometimes it can be a marker of underlying things. So, for example, fatigue might be a presentation of mental health. It might be a presentation in something more along the lines of your EBV or your glandular fevers, you know, or a sort of a chronic infection of that type. So even things like your thyroid disease, which is probably less common, or, or even early diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, sometimes all we really see is fatigue and weight loss or very sort of generic, generalized symptoms. So I think that the key for all of this is making sure that in every encounter we have, I always talk to GPs about making sure you have a systematic approach so that you don't necessarily need to you know, spend 45 minutes with every single patient. That's not going to be practical, but you need to know some of the really kind of key questions to narrow down your field of questioning so that if you are going to sort of say, okay, I think this is one of those times where investigation is probably not necessary at the moment, we don't necessarily miss something. What are the main questions you use for screening? Is it high temperature or weight loss? What are the red flag questions you generally tend to ask? So I guess with fatigue in a young person, I guess, the, yeah, exactly right. The time frame is the first thing I would be asking. And the pattern, is it been every day? Is it something that's been going on for weeks, months? How long? Is there other things, like you say, with the weight loss or other sort of unusual symptoms? Now, Things like malignancies are thankfully rare in young people, but when they do occur, you know, you need to know some of the sort of questions you want to ask and, and you know, things even just like aching of bones or so or waking up in the middle of the night with aching pains. I've sadly had one or two patients who've had a Ewing sarcoma, for example, who presented with fatigue, but when we questioned, that was actually one of the things that they had said, oh, yeah, I've been getting you know, these aches and lo and behold, you do an x-ray and you, you see something. So I think absolutely all those questions are really important. And then I always say, you know, remember common things occur commonly. So I always particularly focus a little bit on mental health and I also do focus a bit on EBB as a common cause of fatigue in young people. We think about things like your iron deficiency, so dietary. So I would be asking questions about, you know, diet. I'd be asking questions about potential other causes of iron deficiency, such as heavy periods in girls particularly. I'd be asking about any other symptoms that might sort of indicate something like an underlying infection. So, for example, obviously night sweats is always a red flag, but things such as, you know, did this start with an infection of some sort? Sometimes people say, oh, you know, I was absolutely fine and I had really bad tonsillitis and, you know, just before Christmas last year and ever since then, I've just never felt that I've fully recovered. So so I think that some of the general screening questions which can help you narrow your search a little bit. Brilliant. That's an excellent summary of things to watch out for. One of the other things too is that as you're obviously seeing a growing population in the form of not only an increasing number of, of patients, but also they're growing in size. What about things that affect developmental delays? I mean, what do you watch for in that? How do you assess children progressing to adolescence and assess the main developmental delay scenarios? So developmental delay, in some cases, absolutely, we do pick it earlier. And that's what the ideal that you want to pick it early. But you're absolutely right that sometimes it really presents in teenage adolescence. So if I think about a couple of cases, probably for me, often the presentation is in a, in a teenager who the school has flagged some concerns. It's either typically about behaviour or learning or 
social interaction with other students. And it can be very difficult because the, the developmental assessments do require a high level of expertise, probably much beyond what a lot of us in general practice would really be able to do to that level. But I do think that we can recognise sometimes red flags. So I remember, for example, having a student who came in and was 14 and had been getting a lot of detentions at school for not doing homework, had had some one-on-one tuition with a aide and had still not been able to sort of do the work there. The aide was saying, oh, he doesn't even want to concentrate. He just gets up and starts walking around the room. There were, there were certain parts to this that just didn't sound quite right to me. And I guess the difference is there that I was thinking, well, this is this could be simply a situation of a young person who's ignoring their teacher and ignoring the aide and just refusing to do anything. But in his presentation with me, it didn't seem like that was necessarily, there was a defiance in his attitude or, or behaviour. What I was more concerned about was that maybe we were missing something. And sure enough, as we did a bit more exploration into his history and that he had delayed milestones as a child, had never really been followed up much from that. And really following some assessments, long story short, he actually got taken out of main school streaming, having been discovered to have quite severe ASD and couldn't go back into the mainstream schooling environment. So, so yes, it is really important. I think sometimes, you know, we, we assume that things will have been picked up in childhood, but they don't always get picked up in childhood. And I think that whilst it's good practice to not get too narrow and sort of pigeonhole things and go, oh, I think this must be, you know, a developmental problem or so, I always think it's very important to keep that in the back of our minds when we've got a situation, particularly with a young person at school, when the history just doesn't seem to quite fit. That's a good segue into our next part uh, there, Lane. Autism spectrum disorder being slightly more common nowadays. I believe it's been more commonly diagnosed. Is that because people are on the lookout for it or is there something in our development that's actually becoming more common? Yeah, it's possibly the $60 million question, that one. I think we are certainly becoming a lot more aware of recognising it and I think our testing and assessments have become a lot more, yeah, a lot more sort of refined as well. So we're a lot more aware now of how ASD really is a spectrum. I think once upon a time, it was considered you had to have very extreme symptoms to sort of really be considered for that diagnosis. But now we can we can really sort of identify that sometimes making the diagnosis in people with much milder symptoms can be very useful in helping them move forward. I'd like to let you know that Aussie Media is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. It's an interesting concept, the whole idea of ASD, with the diagnosis being an autism spectrum disorder, when actually yeah. uh, you think of some of the biggest co- contributors to societies have actually had uh, been diagnosed in retrospect of having, probably having this. So in some respects, you wonder why it's called a disorder as opposed to actually a positivity. And I think that's actually a really good point in all of mental health. I think we want to try to get away from that stigma that any diagnosis is you know, a negative thing. I think that even with anxiety, often anxiety 
disorders, you know, in inverted commas, uh, are the result of certain personality types and factors that are often have incredible skills in other areas. I often laugh and think, you know, when we were at med school and they put up a lecture doing obsessive compulsive disorder, they put up the, <laughs> the diagnostic criteria. I think we were all looking at each other just going, is that you? That's me. I think, you know, I've got that, you know, and, and we always laugh. You know, there, a lot of people in medicine, I mean, we, we probably do embrace some of those more obsessive compulsive tendencies. It's that sort of, it's often a, a great sort of recipe for success in many ways. It's really coming down to, I think, for, for something to be classified as a disorder, we've got to be very clear that that really refers to an impact on day-to-day functioning. And that doesn't mean that it's always going to necessarily be that. So people can have a history of obsessive compulsive disorder, but not really have a, a presentation at any given time that meets that criteria. So I've, I have patients, for example, who say, oh, I've been treated for obsessive compulsive disorder, but currently I'm actually managing really well and it isn't impacting on my day-to-day functioning. But when it does get really out of control, it does. So, yeah, I think it is a very good point and understanding sometimes that normalising some of this for parents and individuals is really important and a really good part of being a GP as well. Probably brings me on to the idea of what we all think of as one of the most common issues in adolescence is the social media and the stress associated with it. It's something that would have been diagnosed 30 years ago, but now it's a very common scenario, I believe, with the idea of cyberbullying and other stresses associated with it. I presume this makes up a lot of your practice in the adolescent group? I guess the the thing about any form of uh, medicine and working with individuals is that as the environment changes, so does the presentation of things. And certainly the world of technology and social media is evolving so rapidly that we're seeing changes every single day. And even in the last 12 months prior to COVID, I mean, we were already seeing a lot of young people who were maybe not having physical social interactions with other people or, you know, there were certainly concerns raised by parents about their ability to go out and and to actually have that social interaction with others face-to-face because it was all very much through a computer. But then in the last 12 months, whether or not any of us really liked it, a lot of us have found ourselves in isolation. We've moved to doing work over Zoom, we've worked to, you know, even doing medical consults over video, which is completely foreign. And it's interesting that for a lot of young people that I've seen, that transition of even doing some of their schooling over Zoom and that has been really, really hard and very, very isolating. So I think in general, understanding the environment and keeping aware of how the environment changes is very important. And you're right. The second part of that is, look, I don't think human nature has changed. I think that we are the same species we were thousands of years ago. And I think that in the context that a young person born 100 years ago was born today, they would suffer the same pressures that a young person today does. But the very big difference is that 100 years ago, they didn't have any of the social media avenues that our young people do today, which means that, yes, bullying and harassment and that has always been an issue, but now it's an issue that can be happening in somebody's bedroom and, you know, which it never used to be able to, to do. You know, even with access to things online, we talk about, you know, access to, to things like hardcore pornography, which is something that you know, even 20, 30 years ago was not as accessible as it is now. And the statistics show us that younger and younger kids are actually watching hardcore pornography probably before they've even seen, had any sort of sex education through school. So how is that going to sort of affect interactions, relationships, expectations and social pressures in that age group? 
So we have to be very aware, I think, and adaptable that this is a very changing area. And it's not so much that the individuals are changing, but the environment's changing. And they are, I guess, responding to that change in the environment. Has this overall led to an increase in anxiety or depression, or the numbers remained about the same? Yeah, look, I certainly think that the prevalence of mental health, it's certainly not getting any lower. And if anything, yeah, we know that it's uh, reported cases are increasing. So if we look at statistics in Australia and worldwide, the, the numbers are, are going up. So maybe that's a positive that we're identifying more cases. I don't like to sort of assume that that's just because more people are suffering from mental health conditions, but maybe more people are coming forward and we're actually making more diagnoses. I'm not sure if that's partly it. But I think that certainly as things happen in the environment and take COVID, for example, we certainly see a correlation in general practice, I think, in our community and how they respond. And how do you involve a psychologist in the treatment of such conditions? I presume you do a lot of counselling yourself, but do you involve a psychologist as well in the treatment of these patients? Yes, I do. Absolutely, I do. And I think that, yes, I do do some psychological treatments myself, but then To do that as a GP, you actually do need to do some extra training for it. So whilst I can do CBT, I actually think that sometimes it's better practice to refer your patients to another person. It doesn't have to be a psychologist. It could be another GP who does CBT or it could be a a social worker, even a counsellor, somebody who can provide that because I think that the collaborative approach is a really positive approach for people and having different roles within that care model is really important. So as a GP, I guess it's about defining, first of all, what the goals are. And that's got to really be the fundamental point of working with your patient and asking them, what what are you looking to, what, what are your priorities? If you had to tell me or if I or your doctor was trying to work out what's the main things that uh, we want to try to achieve for you, your main priorities, what would they be? And so once we've kind of got that clear, It's then about trying to find and match the right fit for that person. So I think that we have to be careful that sometimes anybody who says they're feeling anxious or or suffering from depressed moods or so, we just sort of have this generic, just go and see a psychologist. There's so many different types of psychologists. I think that the best way would actually be to spend a bit more time actually working out with your patients what are the sort of the core issues and what are the sort of main priorities we want to address. Uh, for example, you know, if you see three young people in the and you spend the time talking, you might find that one of them is really struggling with some, some trauma that's happening at school or some issues particularly sort of that are school related. First, the next child could actually be struggling with body image and talking, you know, worried about food intake and restricting eating. First, the next one could come in and actually be questioning something more about their sexual identity or gender. So three very different presentations, all could present with anxiety, all could present with depressed mood. If you don't spend the time to sort of talk a bit more and get a bit more information, you could refer all three of them to just psychologists. But would it be the right psychologist? And actually, each of those three cases, I would actually refer to a different psychologist or a different group. That is just fantastic what you've just said. Just while you're saying it, it made me think of our surgical acumen. What you've basically said is you've formed the diagnosis, you stage the condition, and then you determine the treatment options depending on the diagnosis and the staging, which is what we use in orthopedics or in any part of surgery. So really, it's the same sort of approach, but with the different headings. So I really like your approach to that. 
I appreciate that. And I sometimes even use the analogy with patients and liken psychology or psychotherapy to being a personal trainer at the gym because I think that you know, it's really a coaching sort of interaction and it can be done for lots of different ways. I mean, you could see a personal trainer and do really a cardio heavy session versus a weight session versus a rehab session versus a core session. You know, you could be doing Pilates, yoga. There's so many different ways. They all, all of the different types of physical training have the same foundation in terms of exercise science and understanding of human physiology but each of them will work differently for different people of different age groups you know if you're an olympian versus you know you're training to run a marathon versus you're recovering from say an orthopedic surgery you're gonna have a very different training regime so that's how i often try to explain to patients because i think it, it is also important that they understand what the outcomes are and why psychotherapy is very useful that's excellent. Now, moving on to other conditions such as drug and alcohol abuse, how common is that? So in the last 12 months, actually, the federal government has, and the Department of Health has actually put a lot of funding initiatives towards better training for GPs in the alcohol and other drug space in recognition that this is a very much an emerging problem in Australia of all age groups, and certainly our teenage adolescent patients are no different. So I think that, again, it comes down to a couple of things. I, I think if I was to give one take-home message about how to approach adolescent health, focus on taking a really good history and developing rapport because that's going to be the fundamental step, I think, in working with individuals. So, for example, I always follow my history on the HEADS model and that comes to a part of drug and alcohol intake. And I always talk to young people about whether or not they uh, do drink alcohol or whether they smoke or whether they have tried other drugs or whether they're using other drugs, if you do it in a way that's non-judgmental and explains and normalises the fact that this is part of the general history we take from everybody and it's a confidential discussion but really good at helping us to identify ways to move forward and help them, it's amazing. They often be very open and honest. The other side that I think is particularly important to us in the adolescent age group bearing in mind that alcohol, other drugs and issues is, spans across all ages. But particularly for the adolescent age group, don't forget to ask about safety and risk-taking because we know that the adolescent brain is still developing and in that state of developing biologically, young people are much more likely to make impulsive decisions than, say, a, a person whose brain has had that 25 years of development. So it's really important to assess that and to even spend some time counselling about some strategies to try to mitigate the risk of injury or, or adverse outcome. Well, finally, I'd like to ask about sexual health and the issues that arise in adolescence regarding this. I presume there are a lot of issues that arise from this, including STDs and other infections that can occur. Yeah, and sexual health is an interesting one. Of all the areas, that's probably the area that I've done the most study in. I'm doing my master's at the moment in HIV and sexually transmitted infections, but I've always found it disappointing that sexual health is still considered a controversial topic in the sense that whenever we talk about it, particularly in the youth space, it, it comes across as, oh, you know, this, this could, you know, get people uncomfortable or so. The reality of it is in the sexual health space, I actually break it down and I say that when you're dealing with anybody and it comes to sexual health, infection is one component. In actual fact, if you wanted to make it soften it a little bit, you can use the term reproductive health. And then really we start talking about things like puberty. We start talking about things like all the, I guess, dysfunctional sort of 
anatomical slash physiological sort of conditions. So things from your painful periods to polycystic ovaries to in boys, you know, a lot of them will, as they're getting older, will, will have concerns even about things like tight foreskin or all those sort of things. And so there's actually a range of things within the sexual health field or reproductive health field before we even get into infections. So I think that it's important to not necessarily focus only on the STIs as a GP working with young people. And as a matter of fact, I try to start that conversation a little bit earlier two ways. I, I've started up doing a lot of promotional videos through YouTube where I do, you know, I guess short little education videos about some of these topics. So everything from, you know, puberty and delayed puberty and what's normal and painful periods and all those sort of things. So that you start the conversation early. And then I guess it's really just about trying to normalize that this is actually part of the general health assessment. If you then take sexual and reproductive health to the next level, the other part is it crosses over very much with mental health because of the fact that sexual identity and particularly gender identity are often really declare themselves in that adolescent time and can be very, very confusing for young people who are still trying to find their place. But certainly, interestingly, the statistics from some of the surveys are showing that more and more young people are are finding that they are less sure about their sexual attraction, whether they identify as straight, gay, bi or whatever. I think we're becoming a lot less focused on labels, which is probably a really good thing. I think it's very important to have a, a, an approach, as I say, in reproductive and sexual health, which tries to normalise, reminds people that this is a common thing that GPs deal with all the time. We understand it can be uncomfortable, but you know we're very happy to answer any questions and be here if there's any concerns. That's brilliant, Lane. I really appreciate you taking the time to go through general practice in such detail and discussing the issues that arise in adolescence. Really, there's such a varied area to look into, and it really makes a bit of an exciting aspect of general practice. What do you enjoy most about your job? Oh, thank you. Yes, look, do you know, I think there's so many things I love, but for me, what I absolutely love about general practice is the opportunity to have the follow-through. Well, actually, there's two things. I love the fact that you get to have the follow-through, and I also love the fact that it's such a changing field that really general practice is a bit of a blank canvas now for designing a little bit of your own niche area if you want to do that. Now, for me, I dabbled in you know, three different training programs <laughs> and sort of set it on general practice, which was my lowest priority. But I, I'm so glad that I did in the end, having beforehand looked at paediatrics and it was that was great. I did three years of that, but I also did some work in paediatric surgery, funnily enough, and really enjoyed that too. But I think that what I love about the community-based health is that I've really been able to create a bit of a niche area for my practice, working in that teenage youth space. And you can become... You don't necessarily need to do everything and anything tonight, and, and thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I've really enjoyed talking about it. I certainly am very passionate about the work I do, and tonight I focused on the scope of work that I do in the adolescent field. But you know, I have colleagues at my practice who are similarly just fantastic in a, in a different age group and have a lot more expertise in that age group than I do. So I think that general practice is a really exciting area, and the, the things I really love is getting the chance to follow through where you see people over years. I've had, you know, now families that I've watched grow since you know, I've seen them before they've had kids, after they've had kids, some of their kids are now growing up and hopefully I'll get the chance to be a doctor for their kids as well. So, you know, there's a really nice sense of that as well. Well, thank you very much for coming on Aussie Med Ed Lane. It's been fantastic having you on board. Thank you for having me. Thank you once again. Thank you, Dr. Lane Hinchcliffe. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. 
really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at med-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.